we sort of have a motto that's like, come as you are, take what you need. Yeah, we really stick to that. That's Freya Berwick, one of the co-founders of Sense of Self, and this is Wild Hearts. Welcome to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is the podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. Today, I'm sharing an episode with two Wild Hearts, Freya Berwick and Mary Menez, the founders of Sense of Self. It's a wellness space that totally redefines self-care, which you can actually check out if you're listening to this episode from Melbourne. While they're not setting out to build a venture scalable business, there are so many transferable lessons in this episode. How to deal with grumpy and misaligned investors, creative ways and ideas to build customer momentum before there's even a product to launch, how to make a community or brand decisions by leaning on your values and a heck of a lot more. And I mean, like one of the hallmarks of a wild heart is someone who is able to face an insurmountable, almost impossible challenge and somehow become more creative, more imaginative, and then they can persevere through that chaos until they make it out into the other side stronger than before. These two have totally embodied that on their journey. And with that, it gives me a great thrill to share this episode with the founders of Sense of Self. Thank you both for joining me on Wild Hearts. Pleasure. When I was thinking about the prep for this chat, one of the things that stands out to me the most is that you get the opportunity to see your customers literally living the experience end to end from when they walk in the room or the bathhouse to leaving the bathhouse. And whether it's a face of absolute delight or a face of like a sad, <laughs> sour uh, face of disappointment, what has that experience been like to see them right in front of you experience what you've built? I mean, it's pretty special, wouldn't you say, Freya? Yeah, it's amazing. Probably one of the more meaningful parts of having an in-person business. How do you think about designing the sense of self experience around that feedback to you? And I guess like how have you changed the product from day one of doors opening to now? If you have. Yeah, no, we have. We're very like proactive about feedback, but we have the limitation of being a physical space. So you can't just like move the pool, mm. you know, like the location of it, for example. But we take on feedback constantly and we encourage it and we implement it where we can, where we can change things. Most of all, we're usually in our communications, our booking process, as with the like, we kind of call it like the brand overlay of the experience, which is kind of the way that staff treat people uh, or like welcome people. Would you say, Mary? Yeah, I would agree. Like I think some things we got really right, Mason, like straight out of the gate. I think the the level of hospitality and warmth and the customer service elements have been there from day one because it was really embedded Mm. from the values. And the way that we designed the space as well was supposed to be more inclusive of people. So we, we, we had the opportunity to do that because we were starting something from scratch and it was coming to fruition at this time where it was accessible for us to be able to create it that way. And so that's all been really great. And I think then there's been other things that, you know, we didn't get right. And so we've just kind of adapted along the way with the customer needs. I don't know what those things are right off the top of my head. But. I mean, there are all sorts of things. And the feedback that we take forward into like thinking about the next spaces 
uh, for sure. We have like a really detailed sort of retrospective on the Collingwood site mm. uh, of lessons we've learned in terms of the physical things that we can't exactly change here uh, that we'll take forward into a new space for sure. And that's like, you know, where the toilets are compared to where the change rooms are. God, I don't know, the textures on the wall being a little bit rough or something like that. Like there's all sorts of crazy feedback that we get, some of which you're like, okay, we just take that with a grain of salt and some things are really, really relevant. Mm. Rarely do founders ever get the, especially in the software world, do they get the chance to see the, the customer and the customer experience? And it sounds like, I mean, there's sort of two schools of thought. One is like the lean startup where you sort of get something out there. It's not perfect. You iterate, 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 iterate. The other side of the aisle is like, make the perfect product and then push it out. And then and there's pros and cons to both. In your case, you're taking a big risk to launch something so big and then watch them go through it. But it sounds like it paid off. But what was the initial customer experience that you were shooting for? How did you want people to feel as they made their way through sense of self? Look, the the types of spaces out there for wellness at the time that we were getting started, and I mean, still now, but, but less so. Like, there's been some amazing other other things emerge, but it was kind of like they were either really dingy, you know, those kind of off the street kind of centres, and you know, really affordable, really great, and then they were super luxury. So, you know, spaces where you might not even feel like you can walk into it. You don't might not feel comfortable. Mm. And what we wanted to create was something that was more premium so that it was accessible to a wider market and that anyone could come in and feel, okay, this is really, this is a wow experience in terms of the scale and the aesthetics, but I feel comfortable here. Like I, I can belong here. And so, yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to create that within like the way that the space was laid out, you know, trying to hold space for people who had never bathed before as well, you know, because there's a lot of nerves. People are coming in and taking their clothes off. Mm. So it, it can be a very anxiety inducing experience for some people, if not all. So we were shooting for something that was, yeah, super premium, a beautiful experience, something heightened, and also, I guess, yeah, an experience of enjoyment and a little bit of joy too, like as in a bit fun. Mm. We have certain things in the space that we like to be fun. Yeah. The way that we saw that everything was from the customer perspective and the way that we really thought about the customer was someone coming in quite kind of, vulnerable and how we make them feel held is the language that we use held but having their boundaries positively pushed Mm. Uh, and so the physical space is kind of a reflection of that like hard and soft surfaces like contracted spaces expansive spaces so that you can kind of like go through that physical experience and feel a sort of like an emotional transcendence while doing it Mm. so at least for me, I can definitely empathize with this place feels too out of reach to chill out. Like that high profile, you go in there and like, I'm pretty out of place and probably shouldn't be here. <laughs> and I've also thankfully and gratefully been a sense of self. And now only that you've mentioned it, do I realize like, oh crap, like how the heck did you balance the premium yet inclusive feel? And like, how did you pinpoint that out-of-touch experience with those other products in the market? You know, I think it comes, there's a part of this business which is really, you know, very heart 
fulfilled. I know that sounds quite woo-woo, but it comes from a place of passion from Freya and I. You know, we both love to create spaces of warmth and hospitality for people. It kind of runs in our blood a bit. Would you say, Freya? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there's like that aspect that, you know, layering that hospitality that style of hospitality where where anyone is welcome you just infuse that in every part of the business basically so it's the way that people are greeted it's the way that we send out communications it's it's the way that bodies are represented in the communications like I don't know a lot of other businesses in the wellness space that were showing diversity in the types of bodies that were in in the space but it's a part of our business is that you know we're all a spectrum of health and it's a continuum and there's no one right body type or wrong body type and it's about you know acceptance it's not about having this like zany body positivity it's about just having a neutralization of the body Mm. yeah so there's that aspect but then also the premium element was really a lot of research and inspiration and interest in design and seeing what hospitality businesses like cafes were doing. And, you know, like Melbourne has probably some of the best cafes in the world Mm. and their fit outs were just like incredible, but you'd go into these spa spaces and be super underwhelmed. I love that like adjacent learning in another field and bringing it into what you're doing. Sort of side note, I remember like I was listening to a podcast with you both and you talked about the experience being non-prescriptive. What does like prescriptive look like and how have you managed to make it non-prescriptive? Well, prescriptive is the way that we see prescriptive is basically telling people the results uh, and feelings that they will achieve. So being non-prescriptive is actually really easy Uh, and it's not telling people how they'll feel and instead just giving them permission to feel whatever and sort of saying like, here's one way of relaxing and this is the way that we like to do it, but you do it however you please. So there's a bit of guidance in there because people do want guidance, uh, especially if they're nervous or feeling vulnerable Uh, and bathing in particular has like etiquette and those sorts of things around it. So we sort of guide on that but even that we're not prescriptive about we sort of have a motto that's like come as you are take what you need yeah we really stick to that what's an example of like a trade-off that you had to make when you were designing the layout that comes to mind from what perspective mason we made so many trade-offs yeah. <laughs> i mean you're making trade-offs a hundred times a day but in that like user experience there's probably a billion trade-offs that come to mind where it's like actually this feels a bit prescriptive yeah and it's a little dark and you can't quite tell because it's a little ambiguous Mm. and then you like remind yourself why you're here and then that leads you to the decision on the fit out and I'm curious to see if that sort of ignites an example uh in fit out it's probably a little hard to say like specific examples but choice of materials for example Mm -hmm. uh would be a big one where it's like we don't want it to feel cold or hard or overly exclusive it's like it's like that duality of wanting to create a really elevated experience because we like see that as a part of transcendence it's like something that's so different to what you've experienced that takes you to like this it's like a feeling of escapism basically without being exclusive like that's quite a hard line to walk and I think like where the real sort of constant decision making is in the brand 
the communication of that space. So instead of being like, you should come here and sauna because it's good for you for these reasons. We never do that. We don't do that. We talk about like the history of saunas, the way that people have used them in interesting ways, the cultures that have been born from them, the reasons that they have been used in the past, like the Finnish using them because there were sanitary spaces and so they'd give birth in them, for example. Like it's not how you would use it today, obviously, and we're not saying. <laughs> don't come to SOS and then ha- have a baby. <laughs> please don't, please don't think that's an option. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I know. I can imagine being asked. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of probably where we like make more conscious and constant decisions, actually, around what we're saying and why we're saying it. And do we need to say that? Probably not. We just say something more kind of generalist and suggestive. Mm, I love that. Switching gears into like go to market. Your first bathhouse was in. Collingwood. So your pool of customers sort of has to be people around Melbourne or people traveling to Melbourne. So how did you think about building a pipeline of demand and maybe share like the context of, I guess, events of like getting started and the timing of when you started to think about that in the first place? Maybe I'll start by saying, you know, we were lucky enough to meet doing our a master's in entrepreneurship. So we were kind of geared in a way of thinking about um, the business as a startup for sure. The problem is everyone kept on saying, do an MVP, do an MVP. And we, <laughs> we, we, kept, we kept on coming up with these crazy ideas to MVP but kept on bashing our heads against a brick wall because we're like, how do you MVP a bathhouse? Like it's I'm thinking of like the the Zoolander. What is this for ants? <laughs> yeah, what is this? Yeah, bathhouse for ants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like we we really thought of a few different ways. We were gonna take it to festivals, you know, at one point. Do you remember that prayer? Uh, yeah, like a trailer bathhouse. Like a trailer bathhouse. <laughs> that would have been funny. I love the creativity. Yeah, like there's no yeah, there's no shortage of that. I think the the thing was though that we came to was like no matter what we do, it's going to be removing our efforts from doing the real thing, and it's such a huge push to get something like this open that that just would have been diluting of our efforts. Mm. So, mm. but you know, in terms of building the audience, I think we started with events. So. That's where, you know, we started with the the sort of the themes of why we were doing it and started to engage people with events, which I think, you, Freya, you might want to kind of talk about where we went to from there. Yeah, yeah, we sort of, yeah, following on from what Mary said, after being pushed to like MVP, we were, we were like, no, that's a ridiculous use of effort. And also like that is missing the point. Like the point of this thing is it to like it's escapism. It should be extraordinary. Uh, and unfortunately you just can't do extraordinary with 20 grand 100 grand 200 grand Mm. any of those amounts like it it has to be all or nothing that is the point so we were like well we can't do that so what do we start with we're like an audience Uh, let's kind of like try and show some traction without the actual thing Uh, and we did that in two ways which was building an audience through events and we got together and we had conversations like we held panels and got kind of experts together and led them ourselves and just like putting events out there on Eventbrite basically uh, about our values and why we were doing it but it wasn't like we're doing a bathhouse because of this we would just like hold things on social connection uh, and belonging 
And from that, we grew an audience as well as like grew an incredible understanding of the ways in which people access these feelings and what they mean to our audience Mm. alongside uh, digital marketing, actually, which because we were place specific, gave us a unique kind of way to market to people in the digital landscape because we could just like set a really small radius and market that way and we grew uh, like thousands of people on a on a mailing list that way which was awesome and they were like genuinely yeah we put ads out there being like coming to Collingwood like sign up to be the like first to know about it and like people loved it like (laughs) we spent a couple of hundred bucks and got like thousands of emails and we're like fuck (laughs) why are you laughing Mary (laughs) oh because we did some like we would do some testing as well where we'd like do different messaging and so we were like trialing different things and some of the things that we would have put out the early days would have been really kind of um what's the word a bit of a hack job like they were, <laughs> they were and some of them were beautiful and we were like gosh we better we better come through on this you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh that's a big promise yeah yeah exactly exactly it, it was a big promise and that's the thing it's like actually you know once it started to get pointier and pointier like you know where we're putting out communications like there's expectation for that and, you know, that was a very stressful time because we felt a big sense of, of responsibility to deliver. Mm. You know, at that point, we still didn't have investors. So we were like going out to friends and family and starting to get some interest or support from people in very small ways. And at one point, we just we had to make a, a bit of a decision and just take the leap into signing a lease, basically to start the ball rolling. But that was a pretty scary moment because we didn't have everything we needed mm. to to get started. Yeah, not at all. We'll touch on that. Before we do, I wanted to know whether the brand was started before the you started sort of marketing or was it started after? And like zooming out, what is what does a brand even mean to both of you? It would start it was started alongside that stuff like we were always thinking of the brand we always recognized that this had to be like a really really strong brand because we were coming into something that was existing and wanting to like change the tune of the way that people saw well-being you know when interacting with us and birthing the brand was really agonizing at some points and we look back and we like appreciate the agony and like the way I personally see it is it's, it's like creating a personality and if you want to do it like really quick then the depth of that personality is going to be pretty shallow but if you take that personality through iterations and growth and are like sort of like willing to go through the pain of like revisiting why we're doing it and our values and like really meaning it and like testing those things uh, and then you're going to get a brand that has a lot of depth. Uh, and we are really glad that we did that now, but it was painful in the beginning. Can you make it tangible in the way that like like you're, you're building a persona yeah. in this brand? And so what does that look like from a font or color scheme point of view? I think we'll take it back a step. It's like before you get to the fonts and the colors, I think yeah. the first thing that we did was we really had to know where it was positioned. So we we went to customers or like, you know, the public, the general public, and we did some really daggy, you know, surveys and like went out and did focus groups. Like I can remember doing one at Fray's house and having, you know, eight people around a dinner table and 
And then we did these, you know, like customer surveys, which were like customer discovery. And as we went along, you know, like they initially started out really broad, but as we went along, they got more refined and more refined. And so, and we were mentored by some other people as to like um, certain kind of types of questions you can ask that help you reveal different things about the business. So different things about positioning or about willingness to pay and and all sorts of things like that. So we started getting really fine-tuned in terms of those questions. And actually some of the things that were, were revealed, like we already kind of had a brand in mind, but there were things that were revealed in those conversations that we still use in the way that we talk about the business, in the way that we talk to our team and the customers. So it was super important. Yeah, and that was, it was a huge advantage actually thinking about it that we were building an audience because we had people to talk to about these things and test with them we'd like put calls out like a, a thing up on Instagram being like hey anyone want to have a chat with us about xyz and some people would be like yep and we'd call them <laughs> I mean it's so good like <laughs> the grittiness and relentlessness of like the dinner focus groups I mean and, and it took like two years Mason so like this isn't I mean, we're not talking this is like a few months this took us a few years. How often did you need to, like, you're listening to what the customer's saying, you're doing a lot of it, and then there's the other side of what you see and when those two variables collide in their viewpoints, did you trust your gut or did you trust what the customer was telling you? I think at the start it was hard to know, but I think over time you started to realize that the those interviews you were doing you weren't going to go and transcribe it word for word and take everything that they've said and put it into play but what what you had to do was listen really closely and often like I was really diligent (laughs) about like recording the interviews having them transcribed and re-listening to them and like there were things that you wouldn't pick up the first time but then you would go back over them Mm. and you'd pick up the second time and it might just be one sentence and like that one sentence could form the basis of a whole kind of expression of a value Mm. or expression of how you explain what the space is, you know, because somebody has said it back to you better than you've said it. Mm. And then there were things that were more quantitative, which was like the willingness to pay where you're just aggregating the data and trying to let it give you some clues, but then ultimately, you know, set a price and a pricing structure that makes sense to a, to a broad customer base. So, you know, you have to put some reality check and kind of pragmatism to it. You can't get lost in it. And I, I mean, out of anyone, I probably do get lost in that stuff because I love it. And so Freya was really good about pulling us out and going, no, need to make some decisions. Dynamic duo. Yeah. That process taught us a lot about how we communicate, what we are and how we do things because, you know, you'd often ask someone a a question because like considering that this is in the absence of a site or anything that would launch off on a bunch of assumptions around the spa space or a bathhouse space or like something that they've got from like another wellness space, like a yoga studio. And there would be a lot of insight in there and be like, ah, okay. They've like assumed that we're like this and we've got to make it really clear that we're not like this. Mm. And I want to touch on, I guess, refer back to what you were speaking about earlier, just on the fundraising journey, because if I can say so, Sense of Self doesn't typically meet or it doesn't quite meet the typical venture capital constraints. And so how how on earth did you raise money? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, that was hard. (laughs) That was (laughs) Please go on. 
it was really great that we had an audience. Like our audience was everything to us because we'd built this audience and then we were like, shit, we've got to like put our money where our mouth is. No one's like really believing us. We signed a lease and then we were like, crap, like we can't even afford to pay for this lease if we both worked full time. <laughs> we were like, all right, we are going to sell founding memberships to our audience, not to raise money. Like it was not, it was a couple of grand, but to show traction and yeah, that's how we started. That was our first piece of traction in uh, one week. We sold about 150 founding memberships uh, and had like another thousand or so sign up to the wait list in the weeks after. And we we're like, okay, this is, this is great traction. And then we started going to people and we we're like, we've got a site, we've got some preliminary designs and look, people want to buy it. Uh, and it was probably only at that point, would you say, Mary, that we started to have really meaningful discussions with investors. Before that, it was kind of people were like sort of laughing at us, being like, oh, it's the wrong audience that you're going for. We're like, no, that's the point. It's a different <laughs> audience. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, the laughing, yeah, the the nose that we got, we got a lot of nose. And also I think we were barking up the wrong tree for a minute because like, yeah, Freya was working in that world. Uh, I was working for an accelerator. So naturally people push you towards like the VC kind of or that kind of end of the spectrum, even if it isn't pure VC. And we just realized it's just not going to work. We're going to have to align with investors both on their interest, on their focal area, and also on the the business itself and and that it's a little different mm. and that it's a good it's a good business you know that it's not a it's not a billion dollar business straight out of the gate you know like that's not really the type of business it is mm. so yeah so then we started after we got a bunch of no's we started getting in- introduced to other types of people who were more aligned mm. and what did you learn about telling sense of self i guess the sos story to investors and like iterating on this is hitting, this is not hitting because in the context of what you're doing, it's like, we obviously can't show our product and people using it, but you rapidly did a whole host of things that could build, I guess, belief in a group of people that were aligned with your interests. So I'm just curious what that evolution of the story looked like that helped convince that group over the line. I don't know what you think. I think it was probably ha- having such a lot of skin in the game mm. that we had because we had some money on the table that we pulled together mm. and put put money on, in it, you know, from our own savings and had signed this lease, <laughs> which is ballsy. Like, <laughs> that's like, yeah. Yeah, it was really ballsy. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It was like, I would sort of say... I talk about it as believability. It was just like we got finally to the tipping point of believability. Before that, we were kind of treated as like these two young girls with this like big idea of a day spa kind of thing. And it was like, no, 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 like it's very different from that. Uh, And it was only I think once we had a site, we had customers and we were just like absolutely obsessed with it because we put everything that we have into it that it got past that point where you meet someone and like they took you seriously uh, because they were like, oh shit, you know, this is, this is crazy. All right. I'm listening. Uh, and then they would hear all the nuances of the business and how we we're positioning it and what we'd done with the audience. Yeah. We we're taken more seriously at that point. Mm. I think it was also like just getting a few runs on the board. Obviously, once you get one investor, it's easier to get others. <laughs> so like, that's really pivotal. Mm. Yeah. Who was the the first believer? Who was the first believer? 
I think it was Janie. Yeah, maybe it was Janie. Yeah, shout out to Janie. Can you share any uh, bad experiences with investors, not naming names or anything like that, but just like what does that kind of look like and how did you react? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean. About time we could vent. <laughs> <laughs> I think the investment scene is very um, male dominated. All respect to men, love men. Present. Yeah, present. <laughs> but. We had a lot of people who were either not from this category of business or, you know, saw two female founders who had this kind of female-focused venture Mm -hmm. and they just just didn't put two and two together about it being something that um, was really profitable, I guess, and it was hard to convince them of that. Or or they just weren't interested in it because it was just not a passion of theirs. Mm. And so... Obviously, if you have less of those people, you've got to try and tell the story more to others and find those people. And we've been able to find like our investor group is majority women. And that's amazing. Like it's kind of serendipitous. I mean, I don't think you would have always been able to find that. You know, it's kind of this moment in time is particularly great for that because of the investors that are emerging. But yeah, stories. I mean, we had some funny, oh, we had this very frustrating meeting. Do you remember that one, Freya? I don't know. Oh, when someone told us that we weren't coachable, like we were, this was kind of the thing where it's like, you know, we were continuous, countlessly told that we were pitching to the wrong audience and then it wouldn't work because it's the wrong audience. And, you know, we're sort of like respectfully, like that's the point of the business. uh, That's the point of the positioning. And that's kind of like why we think it will be exceptional. Yeah, with that pushback, someone once told us that we weren't coachable and we were like, okay, <laughs> I think maybe you just don't understand our business, but yeah, right. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That was really. That's horrifying. It, it was, it was like so annoying and pissed us off so much in the moment that made us laugh so much. Those moments bring you together. <laughs> If you can laugh. Yeah. We knew immediately. Like we didn't take it to heart. We were just like, lol. All right. Well, that's positive out of a clearly bad experience on so many levels. (laughs) Did you feel like you had to change the story when you were speaking to men versus women? Uh, Not really. I don't think so. Not not really. I think because we were really diligent about like making sure the business case was super like we did a lot of work on the financials before coming mm. into it and I know they're just projections but I guess with a cash flow type business like as in ours is profitable it's not like a startup where you don't we don't have revenue for ages mm. so you know as long as we're being conservative and roughly getting things right based on the research that we'd done it was a really strong business case so I think we just lent into that for everybody everybody's benefit and had had to speak to the to the meaning of the the whole kind of brand no matter what because it was central to the to that working and did you raise the round before or after the world shut down with COVID and you were launching a physical space Mm -hmm. (laughs) both (laughs) both okay cool well so we did a raise before Christmas of 2020 like as in 2019 to 2020 which was fantastic and we had all of the key investors but we knew we had to do a bit more of a bridging round like an extension round kind of thing and so we were in the midst of that when COVID hit and I remember that we had this funding that was like about to go through 
And one of the lead investors basically dropped down the funding by about 80%. Wow. Yeah, which is like fine. Like, and I, we understood. Mm. Like, we, we, we were like, no, we were like total respect because, you know, if I was somebody who was investing at that time, I would have done the same thing for sure. But, you know, like Freya, do you remember that day we were about to sign the build contract and what happened? That was a really real moment. Like the build contract, Mary does the contracting and like we'd been like, yep, we're signing. Uh, and then like a couple of days later, like Mary was going ahead to sign and I got a call from a, or I called a friend. Like, yeah, I don't know if you remember like when that was yeah. like COVID down everyone was like the world as we know it is ending like yeah. we're never going to be in a public space together ever again and my friend oh who my God. restaurants was just like yeah you know we're like thinking of laying off 400 people I think we're going to go into lockdown and I called Mary I'm like don't sign the contract (laughs) but it was like so it was so close we'd already signed off on it mason like i could have already signed that contract and it could have been sent off already Mm. like it was just the uh, like the one time in life where it's good that i'm a little slower sometimes (laughs) (laughs) that that just happened to not have happened (laughs) the tortoise the tortoise tortoise. yeah there's not Not many silver linings of a tortoise, but hey, that's one. Yeah, so that was that was very lucky actually to get that advice and that we had good people around us. Yeah, it was it was really hard because like we'd worked with the builder for almost twelve months, like getting it, you know, to code and all of these things. Like it's an incredibly complicated thing to build. It's not like a cafe where there's an existing blueprint of like where you put the kitchen, mm. uh, where do we put the change rooms, mm. where do we do this. And so, yeah, it was it was a lot of work to manage that relationship because you didn't want all of that to go out the door. Mm. And it was a hard call to make, but evidently when we made the call, they had had several of those calls that day. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like for them as well. But, you know, they were really good about it, really understanding. And we didn't say no to it. We were just like, we're just going to hold off to see what happens uh, and we did, we held off for a couple of months. We obviously had to make up some funding or actually we didn't make up the funding. We just stripped things out of our build, which, yeah, was a very painful process to like take hundreds of thousands of dollars out after already like value managing it by about 50%. Mm. What do you mean by that? Value managing it by 50%? Oh, value managing is like a, a just a term in construction where like once you get a price, a quote on something where you like, take things out or like you make it ugly <laughs> no. yeah you got it <laughs> all the nice things you got it but you swap around the word from like gut to value <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly yeah so we went through that painful process alongside like doing extra due diligence around like will this be viable and just like what it ultimately came down to do you remember mary it was like well, do we think that this still has a place in the world, even if the world has like changed significantly? And we were just like, yeah, fuck yeah. It's actually even more important. Mm. So we just like went gun ho at it and our investors that stayed on board were like, all right, girls, <laughs> let's do this. Do this. Yeah, no, they were super supportive and they kind of came to the table again with some topping up. And we, we pulled money out of, I don't know if you already said this prayer, but we pulled money out of our super yeah. <laughs> to put more money to it. Wow. <laughs> you know, like when everyone could access everything. Mm. Yeah, we just did everything we could to make it happen. And then what? There's these dark 
ambiguous months of COVID yeah. turning off the world forever. Yeah. Yeah. And we got really, that's where I think anyone who's like an entrepreneur just got really weird for like a few months because you were like throwing anything at the wall, um, <laughs> which we did as well. Like we were one of those, like, I don't know, it's like zany weirdos like being like it's cool well I think we had this idea um we we're like you know what what we do for the world is like bringing joy to people so let's do this thing where we get comedian we pay a dollar everyone pays a dollar for a comedian for a joke so like call them up or something or I don't know it's like dumb silly things it was 1-800 a wall 1-800 lol yeah it was cute it was really cute like, that was we a community were- engagement thing we were like let's just keep our audience active and like warm mm. by doing cute things that like makes them happy. <laughs> hey, wait, did you did, did that actually eventuate? No, no not that oh. one. Not that one. But no, Never. that's that's for the taking for anyone out there who wants to do one eight hundred lol. Since we had one eight hundred lasagna, yeah. <laughs> but we um yeah we ended up doing a series of um, talking events where we like brought people together on like different things like pleasure topics about like uh, food because it would be, food became like a really big focus around like because that's all you could focus on mm. that goes hand in hand with like body acceptance and things like that so we got these experts together and started doing some little events some check-in events and then we decided to do a digital product which you know like hilarious because everyone was doing every type of digital product we did a we did made a course called the naked body and so that is still, yeah, that's still up on our site and it's it's great. We got together all of these experts to come and talk about the kind of the basics of body acceptance and like just, you know, feeling good in your body. And what it didn't do was make us a lot of money. <laughs> it certainly is not something that has been super successful in that way. But what it has done is it's really underpinned, you know, the brand and it's definitely something that is interesting to people who are new to the brand. Mm. I love that. Yeah. We did do a pivot though that saved our asses. Yeah, we did another one. Which was, yeah, we restarted the build halfway through the year after we decided like, yeah, we're still doing it. So this is like June 2020. This is, yeah, yeah. June. Exactly. And at that point in Melbourne, construction was like really, the restrictions were really restrictive. It was five people on site at any one time, which meant that our build timeline like tripled, which impacted our funding because we had to pay more rent and leave more for runway, basically. So we were like, how are we going to pay our rent? And we decided to open a massage studio upstairs, which was kind of always the plan, but the bathhouse was going to open first. Like that was part of the value management, basically, just doing a bathhouse, not a bathhouse and a massage studio. Mm. And so we were just doing the bathhouse and then we were like, let's open a massage studio. It can operate once Melbourne does come out of lockdown it can operate while we're still doing downstairs and just like pay our rent and some of our wages and things like that and now the massage studio is booked out like six months in advance and it's like the most sought after thing ever and it really did save us so we ended up opening that right out of the first lockdown which was November 2020 uh, and then we opened the bathhouse like the bathhouse was complete in March 2021 and if we didn't have the massage studio operating and paying our rent like we wouldn't have been able to open the bathhouse yeah kind of mind blown how long did the 
massage studio keep the lights on before you could then launch the bathhouse? Yeah, for like five, five months, four months. You touched on earlier about this idea of how COVID would actually drive more people wanting to experience sense of self. What do you think the importance of like reflection and relaxation is in someone's life? And why do you think COVID made that even more important or acute in their life to search for really? First of all, I think people come to sense of self for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's rest and relaxation and in the lockdown it was because they couldn't go overseas. So they were looking for experiences that they could have that were local to them, Mm. you know, anything to kind of get them out of the house really. And because don't forget we had another in Melbourne at least, we had another five, four or five lockdowns throughout 2021. So we were closed for a total of 111 days in 2021. Yeah, which was insane for us as well as for everyone in the city. I think everyone was going insane. Yeah. So I think it became important, you know, from a basis of like, yeah, just getting a different experience from having some connection with people, which is a big part of our business and also the rest piece. Can anyone just just sort of like book up and and get into the bathhouse or is there a wait time there too? There's a bit of a wait time there. On weekends, it's like two to four weeks, but at the like less high demand times, like, you know, middle of the day on a Tuesday or whatever, there is a bit more availability, but it's fully booked every day as well. It just doesn't book out as far in advance, which comes down to sort of consumer behavior as well. You know, people book a massage for their anniversary, birthday, those sorts of things, they plan it. Mm. What's next for Sense of Self? When I interview you guys and you've got a thousand bathhouses around the world, but what's what's the I mean, hopefully you'll you'll come back on, I should say. But what 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 does sense of self look like in the next few years? <laughs> well, we're being we're being coy on this. We're being silent because we're being coy, but what can we say? You don't have to say anything. No, I think we we'd we'd no, we'd love to say something. You can just be like, Mason, we we agree with with your ambition. Yeah, yeah. I think it's not, I think the the key is it's not going to stop here, you know. What we see for Sense of Self in the coming years, I mean, I think we want to keep building the brand out to be something that's broader than just something for Melbourne, maybe going to different cities, maybe one day internationally, who knows. I think you will see some products emerging in the next little while from us. And as well, I think some, you know, different types of experiences when we evolve in different places too, which I think people might not have experienced before. And so it's really pivotal, like it's really key to our model to bring these curated new experiences to people. Mm. What does it feel like to have been through that lockdown and now you're here talking about expanding the brand have you sat back and reflected yourselves? Yeah, yeah, we've reflected a bit. I mean, uh, we have to do that more. We don't do it enough. I think once you, when you've been in survival mode for so long, it is quite hard to come out of survival mode. But I think we're actively trying to come out of survival mode now. We're like, oh, we can breathe. We have resources. Uh, things happen that is not just us making it happen. We both took our first like leave this year because you know the borders opened up and we were dying to go and yeah there was a point where we had a bit of crossover and I text Mary I'm like hey you're in Greece and I'm in Italy and sense of self is running (laughs) like (laughs) that was was a nice moment 
yeah that was a moment of realizing like yeah yeah you can sort of you can breathe when we think about wild hearts we often refer to this idea of life's work and even right at the beginning you were like this is in our blood building these experiences what do you think gives you the most energy when you're working on sense of self oh for me it's the variety and combination of things but i love 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 like creating something that is exceptional through layering things like brand customer service and physical design and when we talk about exceptional it's exceptional for our guests as well as our staff that's kind of what means the most to me what about you mary I think for me, it's bringing a bit of magic to people's lives and giving them joy and putting a smile on their face, I think is a very special thing to me uh, and something that my uh, dad always, you know, was a very sweet and a happy fellow and always um, imbued in me. So I think that that's the special part for me. That is a perfect way to end this episode. Thank you both so much for joining me on Wild Hearts. And I cannot wait until I get to experience that magic again. So thank you both so much. Thanks, Mason. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed. Yeah, yeah.